Could your gluten intolerance stem from a personality disorder? Well, sort of. Clinical hypnotherapist Caspar Poik has found that negative emotions, obsessive compulsions, and loneliness not only lead to emotional eating, but also to food allergies and intolerances. He helps people transmute those negative feelings into positive ones, helping his clients to overcome food allergies, emotional eating, and much more. Listen in as Caspar shares his methods and miraculous outcomes simply by helping people to shift their relationship with food. Coming up next on the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. Meet Gina. Gina wanted to lose weight, so she spent two years fasting, detoxing, and dabbling with vegan diets while practicing a shit ton of yoga to lose 25 pounds. But it took so long that nobody noticed. Then, Gina started Frenching her food by eating fatty cheeses, butter, sausages, and red meat, and lost 15 more pounds in only two months. Everybody noticed this time. Frenching your food unlocks the riddle of weight loss that skinny French chicks use to slim down, look young, and live longer despite doing everything wrong. Be like Gina. Start Frenching your food today by visiting nutritionheretic.com forward slash Frenching. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. (laughs) It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. This is Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. Today, I want to talk about a woman. I'm going to call her Judy. Okay, Judy came to me with, actually, Judy came to me knowing everything. That's right, Judy knew everything about nutrition, but she wanted the help of a nutritionist. I don't know if she was patronizing me. Uh, I don't know if she just wanted to, you know, click off a, a the little, tick off a little box somewhere that said, yes, I saw a black nutritionist and I have my Jewish massage therapist and I have, you know, whatever. Anyway, so she was, I don't know, she just had, she had a lot of baggage, but that she wouldn't necessarily admit to. So anyway, she has, she was about 60 years old and she started seeing a little midsection weight. And I gave her a meal plan and, and, uh, some things that she can start doing. This was actually back before coconut oil became the, the big thing. And I recommended some coconut oil to help speed her metabolism a little bit. And she really had issues with consuming fat. And what was interesting about this is not only did she claim to have a very close friend who was one of the the world's top lipid biochemists, but her husband was also consuming coconut oil and she couldn't fathom why he would do that. Meanwhile, she's got the signs of being very dehydrated, very dried out, uh, no moisture at all in her skin, no healthy fats going into her body because she wasn't eating any fat. Uh, and it, I mean, it goes deeper. She had a, a child who had a mental disorder that could have definitely been related to not getting enough fat in her diet. But anyway, she really seized up. And every time I would recommend, uh, you know, that she increase her fats, whether through uh, omega-3 fats or coconut oil or just a dab of butter on her toast, uh, she would totally freak out. So what happens is she becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and she starts to gain weight. Uh, we ended up doing, uh, as you know, I've talked before about EFT, emotional freedom technique, which is a tapping technique uh, in energy psychology. And, and I walked her through some steps. And when we got 
through, we broke through some of her issues around fat. She not only started to lose weight, but she actually started to crave fat and realized that it was okay that she wanted some fat in her diet. So with that, uh, today's guest heretic is Caspar Poik. He's a clinical hypnotherapist based in Ojai, California. Hello, Caspar. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I, when I, my, it was actually my assistant who approached me. She found your website and, uh, you were speaking very much to me on the website because I have seen this over and over and over again, uh, where people decide on a diet because of whatever politically correct or overly intelligent, perhaps, or overly researched uh, ideas about diet and uh, fasting, etc. And they get in their own way. They end up getting in their own way because they cannot let go. And they go into this very tense area where they're getting the exact opposite results of what they want. Talk to us a little bit about what you do. And you have a, you ha- you definitely have this emotional component to what you do. Tell us about your work. Okay. So my, the work that I do, I call it digestive psychology or digestive therapy. And I grew up the son of yoga teachers. And a big part of yoga is the recognition that the body affects the mind and that the mind also affects the body. Mm -hmm. And so when I started looking at the relationship that a lot of people have with food, like you say, they come from it's, it's sort of a bell curve. If you have no awareness, if you don't care, if you're not tuned into what you're eating, you eat very bad food, which is very bad for your health. Then increasingly, you become a little bit more interested, you become a little bit more educated, and you start making better health choices for yourself. So now the bell curve goes up. But then you get people, like you said, who become obsessive compulsive about it, and they become so hyper aware of it that the anxiety and the stress and the resentment and the guilt and all these negative emotions actually start to offset the effects of the health benefits of the food. So one of the things that I tell people in my workshops is there is no amount of kale that you can eat that will offset the damage you're doing to your body from stressing over finding the right amount of kale. Exactly. That's that's exact. That was actually something I learned really early um, in my nutritional journey because I had a, a multitude of food allergies and things. And and my husband, well, then boyfriend at the time, we decided we wanted to go to Turkey. And one of the connections that my doctor and I had was that we had both been to Turkey and we loved Turkey. And so I, now I wanted to share that with my husband. And he goes, "By the way, he goes, I know that you're not uh, you're not supposed to be eating bread right now, but you're going to Turkey. Don't stress over it. If you need bread, just eat it." You know, and I learned that early on that sometimes we do create, you know, this, this good food, bad food paradigm that ends up not serving us at all because we're always trying to put this harsh judgment on things because sometimes, you know, it's not a matter of good and bad. It just is. Maybe it's not appropriate for you at the time. Doesn't make it a bad food, okay? <laughs> I know that misery loves company, but there's no reason to pull everybody down with you because you can't digest milk, right? <laughs> yeah, and you have to you have to parse out. You know, again, the, coming back to that uh, that that bell curve. You know, which to me the bell curve really represents balance, right? You get the two mm-hmm. you get the two extremities. You've got the not paying attention and the paying attention too much. Those are the sides of the, the curve that are very low in, in, health, in health for you. And then the middle of the curve is the high point. So that's the balance. That's the balance between knowing enough about it, being, you know, being informed and not stressing. And you know, with things like gluten, for instance, you're talking about going to Turkey and eating bread. One of the things that I find with a lot of my clients is that the, the population for whom gluten is a problem, they tend to be people who are A-type personalities, mm-hmm. who are a little obsessive, who are a little high-strung, and who want to do, who really want to micromanage. Yeah. Now, the really sort of ironic, poetic connection of that, of course, is that you have a person who's obsessive control micromanagement tendencies. And because of that long-held chronic anxiety that comes from it, their tissue gets inflamed. Mm-hmm. Now they're more reactive to the gluten. Now you tell that person who has a tendency to micromanage, you tell them, 
The reason why you're having this is because you need to start managing your grain intake. So you're giving a, a mind that is already predisposed to fixating and to obsessing, you give it something to obsess over. Yes. So instead of helping them, you're actually aggravating their problem because Absolutely. now they start to really hyper-focus. Oh, I need to avoid bread. I need to avoid grains. I need to, And it becomes so obsessive that they're actually inflaming their anxi anxiety symptoms more and more. Right. Which, in, you know, and to them, instead of, you know, the answer being, oh, wait a second, um, I need to calm down about this. I need to relax and take a step back. They say, oh, I'm seeing symptoms. That means I am not controlling it enough. I yes. must control even more so. So that becomes this downward spiral for them. Thank you for saying that, because one of the things that I'm always telling people when they say, I'm gluten intolerant, I say, okay, so what else are you allergic to? And then they say, well, I'm not, I don't have anything. It's just the gluten intolerance. I said, that's not, that's not possible. I said, eventually you uh -huh. will wear down your system yep. and you will become allergic to corn. You'll be allergic to rice. You'll be allergic to whatever your go-to, because now you're fixating on only replacing it with this one thing. <laughs> Right. So, yeah. so um, I, I have found you, these don't come in a vacuum, particularly these types of intolerances do not come in a vacuum. Uh, and, and this is one of the reasons why I'm always urging people, particularly when they start to find out about these food allergies. And, and I'm using allergy, of course, as an umbrella term for all the intolerances and sensitivities. But once you find out about these things to focus on healing, not to focus on avoidance because avoidance is just going to lead you down this, like you said, the spiral, in my opinion, of more avoidances till you're down to, you know, three foods. <laughs> you know, it's really funny when we, when you, when you look at uh, virtually every language that I've, because I teach my workshops around the world, I also deal with people who naturally speak a different language. Right. And I will ask them, okay, what, what in your language, in your uh, you know, your expressions in your language tie emotion to the digestive system. Mm -hmm. you know, we know things like, I've got a knot in my stomach. Yes. Oh, that was, you know, I, I just, it was so emotional. I choked. Mm -hmm. um, I can't stomach that situation. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, that scared the crap out of me. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever it might be, you know, there, there's all this language that reflects that we inherently understand and know that our emotions affect our digestive system. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting when you talk to, you know, Western medical professionals, they recognize that stress, and we all do, we recognize that stress has detrimental effects on our health. Mm -hmm. So we know that, you know, anxiety might make you short of breath, that uh, fear might make you tense, you know, whatever it might be. But there's, we know that there are physical expressions of the emotion in our body. And we have this, when we talk about stress, it's bad for your heart, it's bad for diabetes. Everybody says, oh yeah, of course, I, you know, I concur. But then, but we think about what is, what is stress, you know, and, and most people, I think stress means I'm really busy at work or yes. it means, you know, I've got tension with my kids or it means that I have financial worries. They see it as an external, excuse me, but they, I think they, they focus on it being something external and it's almost a badge of pride for a lot of people as well. Oh, I'm yeah, so stressed. Perhaps. Oh, yeah. oh, oh yeah, I'm yeah. so stressed. Well, so how are you doing today? Oh, I'm so stressed. Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so, you know, and, and it's like, they, it's almost as if they don't, there's no reason for their existence unless they can prove how stressed and busy they are. Uh, yeah. yeah, busy. Busy is definitely a very, a very impressive one. I'm busy. <laughs> what are you doing right now? I'm busy. <laughs> oh, good for you. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you, you really did, you know, you really, really struck a chord right there. No, no, not at all. You know, so, but the, the question for me always then becomes, well, what, what is stress? You know, stress is an umbrella term. Stress just means you're overloaded with a negative emotion. But what emotion is that? You know, fear can be stress. Anxiety can be stress. Anger can be stress. You know, there are a lot of different sort of colors of stress. There's a lot of different expressions of what stress is. And so, you know, in the same way that fear, you know, we say made, made me shit my pants, you know, okay, well, we, that is physically true. Like you go in the ocean and there's a shark. A very important thing is that you have to make sure that you don't defecate because the shark will come and eat you because they can smell it. But the fear will literally make people evacuate their bowels. Right. You know, if you have to go and do a public speaking event, the anxiety from it may make you have to go to the toilet and have some diarrhea just before you go up on stage. We all know this to be true. Yeah. So it is a real mechanism that's happening. 
Now, we, we come from this sort of, you know, we're in this binary time, you know, with computers all being binary systems, zeros and ones, and our, our political system, you know, it's Democrat or Republican, you're good or evil, you're with us or against us. It's all this black and white thinking. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of room for nuance, but it really all takes place in the nuance. It's not either I am not stressed or I'm stressed and about to go to the toilet because, you know, I've got the runs because I'm so scared or, or nervous. There's a whole scale in between it. Absolutely. So if a person has 50% anxiety, you're not, you don't have diarrhea, you don't have to run to the toilet, but that doesn't mean you're completely relaxed. And now you have that 50% anxiety for 10 years. Well, guess what? That same tissue that normally, if it had been running at 100%, would have acutely made you evacuate your bowels, wasn't stimulated in that way so extremely that you evacuated your bowels, but it was still stimulated 50% which you then held for 10 years, well, don't expect that to not give you any symptoms. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's what's hard for a lot of people. It's, you know, they can, they somehow, you talked about cancer before, they can understand like, oh, I developed cancer. You know, I'm 65, let's say, and you know, I didn't have cancer before I do now. But when it comes to digestive disorders, people are like, well, I never had a problem with this before. Why is this a problem now? Right. Did you ever notice that? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's really the, it's it's really the foundation. And then, I mean, if you want to take it a step further, very often people are going through these digestive disorders before the heart disease, before the cancers, but because they did not acknowledge them, they did not deal with them. It, they progress until they become something that they cannot ignore anymore. Right. Like one of the things in, in my workshops that we talk about are symptoms. So, um, you know, if I have a, if I dr I'm driving my car and the light on my dashboard comes on that says check engine, mm -hmm. that's, that's a symptom that, that engine, that light is trying to tell me that there's a problem with my engine. Now I can say to myself, wow, that's really annoying to have that light on, on my dashboard. You know what? I'm going to take that light bulb out or I'm going to put a little bit of black tape over it so I don't see it. <laughs> Well, guess what? That's not the same as fixing your engine. <laughs> it really isn't. Yes, the symptom went away. But guess what? Now your engine didn't get fixed. And worse yet, because you're no longer being reminded that you have a problem with your engine, eventually your car will blow up. Right. <laughs> and that's what we do with our body. Our body gives us a symptom, which is the light on the dashboard. And it's saying, hey, there's something amiss. You should pay attention to this. But instead we say, oh, wow, that's really annoying to have the symptom. Let me take something to cover up or make the symptom go away. Right. And now we forget that we have a deeper problem that we should be tending to, and eventually our engine blows up. Absolutely. Uh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I'm thinking of like three people right off the bat <laughs> who would do that. <laughs> <laughs> with the car <laughs> so you but you you say something uh, i read an article that you you sent me a link for and i'm gonna read you the one sentence that really stuck out for me which is sadness anxiety obsessive compulsions and loneliness lead to various kinds of emotional eating and fasting now fasting is one of those pet peeves of mine and, and my listeners know that I have a pet peeve every freaking show. Uh, but you know, it, it, fasting is normally thought of something that is good. When does fasting become a negative for you? When it's, uh, when it's withholding, when it's, when it's, uh, you know, when you're, when you're fasting with an intention because you want to do a cleanse or because you want to get lightheaded and go into a sort of more spiritually connected place for meditation because you're, withdrawing nutrients from your body and your body goes into that stress response, right? It's like your body is starving. So you start to get the endorphin rushes and all these things that will lead you to having more uh, subconscious experiences, if you will, you mm -hmm. know, more spiritual, more emotional experiences. If that's the setting for which you're doing it, I'm all for it. But if, you know, there are people for whom fasting is an ex is really what they're doing is they're starving themselves. They're starving their soul. They're starving their, their, their lifeblood and their energy. But it's, it's for a different reason. You know, anorexia is a form of fasting. Absolutely. Um, but it's really, it's coming from a withholding and, and not worthiness, you know, a, a wanting to be invisible. A, you know, that, that's sort of driving this, this malnourishing of the self. Right. Right, exactly. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of these fasts and detoxes and cleanses, you know, well, first of all, what, one of the issues that I have is that the, the focus 
more often than not, is literally just on emptying the system. And like you talk about that starvation mode. When I guide people through this type of stuff, I actually like to see something that targets rebuilding the organs specifically. And as opposed to just withdrawing food and then, I mean, because basically I think a lo- uh, there's a lot of people who are doing these fasts uh, because they believe they're going to fix the gluten intolerance or what have you. And all you're doing is emptying the system. I mean, it gives you a temporary relief, but as soon as you go back to eating anything, you're right back at square one. So I like to see people targeting with some herbs or supplements to help fix their various organs or, you know, not fix, but tonify them so that they can function optimally when they're stepping down from the fast. But yet, like you say, a lot of people stay in that fasting mode. Yeah. And I'd be interested to to hear what the what the, the train of thought or the, the logic is behind thinking that withdrawing food from the system for a while somehow fixes an allergy. That that sounds like a very strange theory. I'm this not is, sure what what the actual mechanism in the body would be that get triggered by not eating food for a while. Yeah, it it's there is none. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this is this you know there's unfortunately as you know nutrition is not a regulated term. So there are schools that will certify people with whatever diet they want. You know, they'll, they have their own little certification that they, they do and they, they tell people, you know, like, look, there's, we're going to list 300 diets. You tell us which one you want and we'll put you on that track and we'll give you, you know, you hand us 10, 10 or 15 grand and we, we will give you a certificate in that, uh, at the, you know, at the end of a year or whatever it is. Um, and, uh, so basically, and then there's, there's people who are the naturopaths. They are the MDs, the DOs who really a lot of their nutritional training ends up coming from those free magazines at the health food store. (laughs) And and, serious, I'm, I get you not. (laughs) This is where a lot of them are getting their information. And so they, they seem to think that just, I guess it's resting the digestive system is enough to heal the digestive system, but it's really just, you know, it's it might be giving somebody a reprieve from symptoms, but it's not actually building the organs. Now, I do think that sometimes a slight caloric deprivation can stimulate the body to almost treat food as a homeopathic remedy, if that makes any kind of sense, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what you're putting in there. Um, and that's kind of what I'm, I'm getting at when I'm saying that, you know, if you're going to do these types of detox cleanses to do some, some, uh, organ supporting herbs, because then, and, and, and I don't even do it in a, in a way that's really de- deprivation. Like nobody feels hungry. The only thing is that you might miss, you know, one of your favorite foods, but it, it only goes for eight days and most people can last eight days. You know, I, I like to see people, you know, building the organs, but yeah, I think that they think that just by emptying the bowel, and just letting it rest that that's enough to heal the body but as you know you need you need uh tools in there to work with <laughs> before any healing can begin yeah and and to counter that i mean i do a big theme in in my work is appreciating the fact that you know our our human body as far as we know is about 6 million years old you know and so there's six million years of evolutionary wisdom. For six million mm-hmm. years, it's been a trial and error experiment to figure out what is the most effective and efficient way to sustain and repair life. That, that is the drive of all living things: is to sustain and you know to sustain life and to fix problems along the way. So I do believe that the more we can get out of the way of our our body's innate drive to fix us and to keep us healthy the better off we are and that's why things like you know all these different stresses that we talked about all these different emotional tensions that we put on the body on the body get in the way of the body wanting to do what it knows it should be doing now i want to make one thing really clear because i haven't haven't introduced that yet but uh, since we're a little ways into the show i also want to make sure that it doesn't come across that I say that it's all in your head because I'm not, that's mm-hmm. not my idea. You know, like right. I said before, I'm, I'm from a yoga family and the idea is that the body affects the mind and the mind affects the body, which also means that, yes, there it is very important to have good nutrition. Yes, it is very important to have good diet. So I'm not saying diet and nutrition are not important. It's all in your mind. No, no, no. But what I am saying is 
it's not just diet and nutrition because right. like the kale example, there's no amount of kale you're going to eat that's going to offset the damage from stressing over finding that kale. Yeah. So it's a symbiosis between the two. It's a balance between the two. You know, if it's just in your mind and you're going to eat crap food, it's still crap food. Right. But if you're going to eat really healthy food and you're anxious and angry and guilt-ridden and all, it's also not going to work for you. So you need to find the balance between those two. Right. Yeah. And I, I have a, a lot of friends, for example, uh, who they know that what I do and they kind of understand the basics, but then they'll see me eat out and I don't, I'm not eating at McDonald's, you know, I, I, but I sometimes I want to be social. And, you know, I will go to a restaurant, I'll make the best choice that I can from from the menu. And, you know, I, I know it's not going to be like what I make at home, but it's better than stressing about it. And it's better than than being at home saying, shit, I wish I could just go out to a restaurant. You know, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know so you, you, you pick your battles. It doesn't well, not to you, mention, you know, eating is inherently a social activity. Absolutely. You know, every religion has celebrations that involve food. You know, whenever you go to a party, whenever you go to a gathering, food is always a central component of it. And if you actually look at what happens in the body, when you eat with other people, you get an oxytocin release. Mm -hmm. Now, the oxytocin, you know, for those who don't know, is is what is called the bonding chemical. You know, it's a, it's a bonding hormone that mothers and infants release when they're nursing. Yes. It's what you release when you hug somebody. It's a chemical cue that you and I are connected. Yeah. And so if you look at mammal behavior in nature, if a group, if a pride of lion hunt down an eland and now they're eating together, they are together releasing oxytocin. So it's saying we are the pride and the animals that are not being part of the eating are not getting the oxytocin release. So it is chemically being cued to them. You are not part of this pride. Yes. And this is what we do with religion. This is what we do with family. This is what we do with friends, which is why it's so important to eat with other people because on a, you know, yes, it is great philosophically. Yes, it's great emotionally. Yes, it's great, you know, in, in your mind to say, okay, I'm eating with other people. This feels really good. And in addition to it, even without any of the neocortex awareness of it, your actual physical body is bonding with people. And, you know, bonding is huge um, medicine against depression, for instance. You know, depression, mm -hmm. the, the main cause for depression is a sense of isolation and loneliness. Right. And people feel isolated even in company of other humans. Yes. They still feel isolated and that leads to depression. So eating together is huge medicine for that. Right. And that includes going out to eat with your friends and not being stressful about it because it's not you know, the perfect whatever that you would have cooked at home. Of right. course, go eat out with your friends. Right, right. Yes, and and this is uh, what you said really rings true because, again, this is something that I'm I'm always trying to hammer, <laughs> hammer into people's heads, which is that, you know, when, now you get the gather. Let's take Thanksgiving as an example. And this one doesn't eat that. And that one needs tofurkey. And this one can't have the potatoes. And, you know... <laughs> Each person. So, so like, you know, everybody has to bring their own dish and all they end up eating is their own dish because it's the only thing they feel comfortable with. And so we've gotten to a point, I believe, with some of these choices, whether it's from overeducation or an actual allergy or whatever it is. But we've gotten to a place where being in company has become isolating. Yeah. Because we have become so obsessive compulsive about some of our choices. Yeah, I mean, if you know, in honesty, with the the example that you gave, if if all those individual people bring their own food and they're cool about it, and the the, the real focus is on let's all sit together at the right. same table and have food together, but we're all cool about the fact that you know we have different choices and that's okay, right? Then that's fine, right? Absolutely. In my opinion, but yeah. when it gets to you know diets, very often, so this comes back to how you know how deeply rooted our relationship to food is. If you look at the way our our system of behavior is built up is from the ground up and the foundation the number one most important thing that the organism needs to do is to survive so the 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 deepest most base drive that we have is breath sleep and food mm -hmm. eating so everything else gets built on top of that so all of our subconscious emotional triggers come from a perspective of you know being drawn toward things that that 
procreate, so to speak, and away from things that represent danger. So that's sort of the, you know, it's the fear reward switching. It's the very basic switching of your, of your uh, reptilian brainstem. Because it's so foundational and so connected to survival, it is so impacted for people when, when they feel threatened or when they feel rewarded. But it's also the same mechanisms that take place in religion. You know, religion is also about you go to heaven if you're good, you go to hell if you're bad. You know, it's like reward or punishment. Yes. And it's very much, you know, like, you know, guilt and grace. You know, it's, it's these sort of systems. It's the fear and reward system. And diets, what I see for a lot of people, become like religion. I've been saying yeah. that from day one, that this is a cult. We're seeing more and more cults popping up. And, and maybe it is because fewer people are going to church <laughs> that we're replacing. Right. We're, you know, yeah. we're, we're using food now as the, as the uh, litmus for, for goodness and badness in our fellow humans. Well, and that's the thing in fellow humans. So, you know, the, the, the religions have beautiful components. You know, there's the component of give and take. There's a component of community, of belonging, of speaking the same language, of having the same perspective. That's beautiful. Yeah. But religions very often also have a judgment on those who are not part of this particular religion. Right. So it's not about how can I make myself better. It's about how can I tell you how to make yourself better. Which is what people do with their diets then. They become religious in that kind of a way. They become zealots you know, <laughs> zealots and prophets of their religion. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. I, I, I can't, you know, <laughs> you're speaking to the choir. <laughs> yeah. No oh, pun, no pun intended. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so t tell me about supercharged brain hacking. This, mm. is, this is something that uh, I read about you. So I personally am not uh, an adherent of any religion. Mm -hmm. I was raised religiously, but I'm, I'm not, no, I'm no, I no longer practice a religion. However, I'm smart enough to recognize that there are certain themes that are present in a lot of different religions. And so the question for me is, okay, well, even though they're doing it differently, and even though they're describing it differently, and even though they're practicing it slightly differently, at the core, they're talking about the same thing. So if all these different people in different places around the world at different times in history all came to the same conclusion, they must have stumbled upon a truth. So I call that the universality of truth, meaning I can take 10 people from 10 different countries to look at the same tree and ask them, what do you call this? They're all 10 going to give me a different word, but that doesn't change the tree. Right. If now we're going to fight over what to call it and forget to eat the fruit, forget to lay in the shade, we're being silly. That's what people do with religions. We fight over how to describe it and we forget to eat the fruit and lay in the shade. Mm-hmm. The universality of truth is the tree is there, and we are all trying to do our best to describe it. Okay, so now we come to super hacking the brain, supercharged hacking of the brain. One of the things that virtually all religions that I know practice is a prayer before mealtime. Mm -hmm. So I started looking into that. Okay, well, why is that? Why is that a universality? Why did all these different people at different times in different places on this planet all come to the conclusion that before a meal, they want to say a prayer. You start dissecting what is a prayer. A prayer in virtually all religions is comprised of two elements. One from, from the psychological perspective. One is a gratitude practice. Thank you, Lord, for my blessings. Thank you, great spirit in the sky for a good harvest. Thank you, whatever. You know, yeah. It's a gratitude practice. The second component is an intention setting. I would like to be more patient. I would like to be more loving toward my children. I would like to be more motivated with my art, whatever that may be. But all the, the prayers are those two components, a gratitude practice followed by an intention setting practice. So then I realized, oh, wait a second. I don't have to be religious to practice gratitude and intention. So because that is the universality of this truth is it's these two components. Well, what happens during a meal? Why is it that at mealtime is a specifically good time to do this? So before we had neocortex thinking, before we had um, sort of higher rational thought, we couldn't tell ourselves, oh, the apple tree is across the river, turn right by the third tree, and on the left is the apple tree, because you know the neocortex hadn't developed yet, which is the same for other animals who cannot tell themselves stories in their mind. So... If I need to increase the likelihood of survival, which is the drive of the organism, how do I remember where the apple tree is? 
Well, that's where the neurotransmitters come in. So I find the tree, I eat the fruit, and all of a sudden there's a dopamine serotonin cycle being released in my internal chemistry. And now there's an attachment that I'm forming. My brain goes into a sort of a higher state of learning and awareness for the craving and reward that is taking place at this tree. So that's how it's subconsciously being embedded where my food source is. And again, because you know, eating is, is part of the actual survival of the organism, it is very strong imprint. So that means that when I'm eating, my brain goes into a, a bigger state of subconscious awareness and it's being embedded deeper. The brain is saying, right now I'm surviving because there's food. This is an important moment to remember. So what I do with brain hacking is I let it be supercharged by this chemistry. If I want to set intention for myself, if I want to do, use an NLP program to affect myself subconsciously and to embed new thought patterns for myself and new belief systems for myself, if I want to do a form of self-hypnosis for my own growth, I can now supercharge that by jumping on the fact that I know exactly at which points during the day I'm having this dopamine serotonin charge. Mm. And I'm going to jump on the back of that. That's the supercharge. Right. And how do you hold on to that once you get into that space? Does that um, make sense? Hold on meaning after the meal or hold on to it as I'm saying my um, prayer? Yeah, yeah. Even, even after the meal. You know, is there, is there a way that we can nurture that and grow it so that, you know, be, if I'll put it this way, it takes about two hours, right, to digest your meal mm-hmm. after consumption. Yeah. How, how do we hold that? feeling that that uh you know serotonin release post yeah, I mean, yeah i, I mean you, you you could continue the meditation throughout your meal you know obviously we're you know a lot of people are, are bringing back the idea of mindful eating and conscious eating uh you know so it's not i'm going to say my prayer and then i'm going to watch television while i'm eating right you know if if you're able to have the intention and hold it throughout your meal then that's <clears throat> that's a longer meditation and that that gives it more time to ingrain right also you know also it's not a it's not a a one timer you know so one of the one of the metaphors i use is say you know the, the the way the synapses in the brain grow new pathways is through repetition mm-hmm. you know the more a particular pathway gets fired every time the electricity travels through that synaptic path it stimulates a chemical growth between the receiving and sending synapse. And eventually those two grow very close. And the more closely they grow because of that buildup of those proteins in between, the more that becomes the path of least resistance for the electricity to go, Right. which is what learning is. I've repeated it so often that now this synaptic path has been triggered so many times in a row that now this has become automated because now the electricity voluntarily goes that direction because it's been the path is the least resistance. Yes. So that comes from repetition. Okay. So, you know, another way of putting it is, say I'm on a hilltop and I pour a bucket of water down the hill. The water is going to follow the rut in the ground and it's going to find, find that channel because that is the path of least resistance. And I say to myself, okay, well, that right now is the path of least resistance. That right now is my preconditioned behavior. But I want a different behavior for myself. And in the metaphor, I want the water to go this direction. I want it to go to the left instead of the right. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I can use conscious intent. I can say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push the water in that direction. I'm going to put wooden boards down, and the water is going to follow those boards, and it's going to go how I want it to go because that is my intention. Right. I'm setting those boards down intentionally, and now the water is going to go that way. Okay, I, I can set the boards down. Now I'll pour the bucket of water. It's going to follow the boards, and it's going to go exactly how I intended it to go. But now I take the, the boards away, and I pour the second bucket. Well, the second bucket is going to go back to the rut that was there initially, mm-hmm. because that is still a very deep rut. Yeah. But if I leave the boards up for the next 40, 50 buckets, if I keep my intention channeled in that direction for 40, 50 repetitions, eventually so much water has gone alongside my boards that it has rutted out a new trench in the hillside so that now when I take away the boards, when I take away conscious intent, that path has become deeper than the original rut that was in the hillside. And now I can trust that even though I unconsciously, without paying attention, just throw down a bucket of water, it's going to go along the path that was carved out when I had intention there, when I had the boards there. So that is how we retrain subconscious behaviors. 
right. through that repetition. Right. Because right. you need to keep stimulating those neural pathways. And so that's what you can do during the meals. You know, you, you hold a growth idea for yourself and repeat it for a few weeks. And now it's starting to embed itself subconsciously. Now it's becoming a reality. The neural pathways are being stimulated and triggered so often that that's becoming your new path of least resistance. Right, right. How do I get rid of my kids? Because, <laughs> you know, we sit down to a meal and, and they, they, they look at each other and they're like, she's looking at me. <laughs> she's trying to grab my food. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think, you know, obviously we lead by example. So, the, right. you know, I think uh, a good way is to try and see if you can involve them in it. And at first, it's probably going to be total chaos. And it's not going to, you're not going to convince them overnight that we're going to do this and we're going to stick with it. But, you know, you, you gradually grow them into it. Yeah, we, we actually were really good with, with my older daughter, uh, with setting intentions and just, just, just a basic gratitude. Again, we're very much like you. We don't, partake of any particular religion or anything but we did you know there's no reason why that means that we need to be hostile towards the world right that's <laughs> <there's>, I <hope> <laughs> <not>. <laughs> but you know i think there i think there are people who think that because you don't go to church or whatever synagogue blah 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 that um there is there there's a hostility towards the world and it's not about that it's just acknowledging like you said that there's more of a that, that we agree perhaps more on a universality of basic cultural and religious truths that many people throughout the world who didn't even have contact with one another all seem to have come to the same similar conclusions right yeah, exactly. So we, uh, yeah, we, we were very good about that, um, you know, with our older girl. But since we had our second one, we, I, I've, I have to admit, I've fallen off the bandwagon, but I'm trying to get back on, <laughs> trying hard <laughs> to get back on. <laughs> but actually, you know, one thing that we've done, uh, in, in recent weeks is we, because it's, uh, summer here in Hawaii. As a matter of fact, kids go back to school tomorrow. Wow. And yeah. And so, um, what we, we did, we started doing is having European style lunch, meaning a, a, a large midday meal and something more just like a bowl of fruit with some nuts or something at the end of the day or some fish with steamed vegetables or what have you. And it really has made mealtime and just the flow of the day much nicer. There is something about having a large middle of the day meal that since I left Europe, I haven't really done that much. And it's been extremely pleasurable. And I think that everybody holds their, uh, their composure better. Yeah. And it also makes more sense from the, the perspective of fuel. I mean, if right. you eat a big meal in the middle of the day, you still have another 10 hours to burn it off. Right. Well, I mean, we take siesta too. <laughs> we're, huh. we're, we're not shy. <laughs> well, we take, you know, just, just like a 15 minute, half an hour power nap or just closing our eyes, not even necessarily sleeping, but just a, a relaxation period after that midday meal. And then you get up and you've got tons of energy and everybody's happy and nobody, and we're not really even that hungry, but we do have a little bit of extra nourishment towards the end of the day, but it, it's done wonders for all of us, I think. Uh, to, to get back on that. Now, that's the challenge is going to be getting that much food into my kids when they're at school because the schools do not support a decent lunch hour. I mean, it's really a lunch 20 minutes. It's not <laughs> not even an hour anymore. You know, it's 20 minutes and you've got to not only have lunch during that time, but you've also got to somehow work in some, you know, playtime with your friends. Right. Uh, and that that's uh, one of the places that uh, in America we really need to work on with our schools because there's such a, a de-emphasis on – see, this is kind of goes back to what you were saying too, is that we, we're getting to the, to the point where we're seeing food as the enemy. So to the school's eyes, it's, it's okay to cut it down because we think about food too much and we eat too much. And, you know, it's all, it's all about guilt and, and uh, our gluttony as opposed to why don't we think about it a little more and that way we'll make a better choice. You know, that way our kids will be more relaxed when they're eating and not stressed out during the meal. Yeah, and it, it reminds me a little bit of how food is treated in hospitals also. Yes. You know, it's when, when, uh, when doctors graduate, in most medical schools, they, upon graduation, say the Hippocratic Oath. And that's to honor Hippocrates, the, the father of Western medicine. Right. 
And Hippocrates, the father of Western medicine, is the one who said, let food be your medicine, and medicine be your food. Yes. And somehow these people who pledge to this person as being the, the pinnacle of their profession dismiss that very important statement that he made. And the way I look at it is if, if my car is broken down and I go to a garage and to have it fixed, and I drive into the driveway and I see rusty car parts and cloudy liquids I'm probably going to say, you know what, guys, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to take my car somewhere else. When our human vehicle, when our body is broken, we go to a hospital. Well, guess what? The cells that you are made up of came from somewhere. Mm -hmm. You were born a foot tall, and now you're six feet tall. So somehow all this biomass came from somewhere. Well, it didn't rain down from the sky. <laughs> It literally came from food that you put in your mouth at one point. So you very, very literally are what you have eaten. So one of the things I ask people is when you look at the food on that plate, ask that food, are you worthy of becoming me? Mm. Because that is exactly what will happen. That food will literally become you. That will become the next cells that your body will build itself with. So are you, is that food worthy of becoming my body? Wow. How do I value myself? Absolutely. So to go back to the, the hospital, you know, when you go to a hospital, they're going to cut you open. They're going to rearrange some organs. They're going to stitch some stuff up. You know, you're going to lose some blood. So now your body has to build blood cells and it's got to build tissue and it's got to build scar tissue and it's got to activate your immune system to fight any sort of incoming dangers now that you're vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera. So your body is going into this state where it needs a lot of supply of building blocks because that's what it needs to fix you with and that is the one time that we're given a shit i know we're in a hospital <laughs> oh my gosh when your when, body needs good building blocks you're in a hospital you're going to give it crap to work with what are you thinking oh my gosh when i had my my older girl she was supposed to be born at home but i had basically i had a, a hospital experience many years ago she ended up being born in the hospital because i was my body was going into this massive distress when she descended anyway uh but she was born in the hospital right so now I'm hungry and I can't get my fucking husband to go and buy me food or get, we lived like three blocks away from the hospital. I could not get him to leave because he was afraid he was going to miss the birth. So I had, so they, um, but I'm weak, you know, I'm, I had been there for about eight hours or not eight hours, uh, 12, 16 hours. And I said, I was like, look, I'm like, really, I need something in my body. So I was just like, okay, what do you have to eat? And, you know, they give me this hideous looking menu. And I finally said, okay, let's, I'll, I'll, I'll get the eggs and the whole wheat toast and some butter. So they send me margarine. I'm like, Shh. <laughs> 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 you know, the, the, the bread looked like something they had stored since the seventies and the eggs were like an envelope. They were just, they were like flat and pasty and just, the most unappetizing thing. So I took like three bites just to get some, some kind of energy into me. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. But you know, I, like I said, I needed something. I, I could feel myself getting the shakes and I was like, well, if this happens, then I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to spiral downward. So, okay. I suck it up. Right. <laughs> like we talked about earlier, right. You suck it up. You do the best you can with it, given the circumstances. Uh, but while I was there, I, I, actually ordered every meal after that to see just how bad they got <laughs> because I'm thinking to myself, you know, these are, because after, you know, after, after she was born, I was able to get my husband to go. He got me a lasagna and he brought some stuff from home. Cool. But, um, I ordered everything just to see how bad. And I mean, it was just like a can of, of cold, wet green beans with a veggie burger that looked like it was just, it looked like, like somebody just took the grass clippings <laughs> off the lawn <laughs> and mm. pressed them together and put them in a nasty bun. And I mean, it was the most disgusting thing ever. And then, oh, oh, and then they put juice next to it, which was fluorescent purple. Ah, nice. Fine that way. Yeah, right. <laughs> In the dark, no less. And so, and and so, I'm, I'm I'm looking at this. I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, women have just given birth, and this is the options that they're given. This is what they are supposed to nurse and nourish a child on. But people do it every day. 
in this country. They don't do it as much in Europe. I, I talked to somebody shortly after that who lived in in uh, Switzerland, and she said, "Oh well, when I was when I gave birth to my son, they gave me a piece of steamed flounder with <laughs> with some nice. uh, with with a baked potato and uh, and spinach on the side and real butter." And I was like, "Eat me!" You know, <laughs> I was so angry. <laughs> She probably only paid 20% of the uh, health insurance costs that we pay. Oh, my gosh. I, yeah. Yeah. When I told my friends in France how much I, I pay, the the uh, insurance company was denying paying. They were like, oh, my God, it costs that much for a birth? And I was like, oh, yeah. You know, we're yeah. talking five figures here. Yeah. So, um, so tell us a little bit, before I let you go, tell us a little bit about your workshops, your retreats, your private sessions. I know that you have something coming up. I believe it's a retreat in Costa Rica. You want to tell us about that one first? Yeah, I do an annual retreat in Costa Rica. It is uh, themed around chocolate making. So we we go to an absolutely fabulous retreat center uh, in, in a private little valley. It has um, six different small lakes on it that mm. attract all sorts of beautiful tropical birds and frogs. And it's just, it's an Eden all onto itself. Mm. Um, the, the place also has a garden of medicinal plants, a garden of edible plants, but also they grow high tree trunk coffee, which is, I guess the original coffee trees were high tree trunk. They bred them to be shorter because it's easier for agriculture. Right. Um, and they also have, um, cacao trees on this property. So what the theme of our retreat is bean to bar. So we, we, we pick the cacao pods, we ferment the cocoa beans, we roast them and we process them. And everybody, all the guests on the retreat go home with their own chocolate bar that they themselves have made. Wow. So that's the sort of the, 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 the culinary theme. Now on the retreat, we also take a cooking class from one of our Costa Rican chefs. We um, do ayahuasca in the middle of the retreat because for a lot of people, they're, both their eating behavior is often triggered by uh, deep held traumas or negative experiences from their past. Um, and also di- their digestive issues stem from that same emotional place. And I found that ayahuasca can really do wonders for a very rapid healing for people. Right. Well, can you explain a little bit about what ayahuasca is for people who don't know? Ayahuasca is a, uh, is a Peruvian rainforest medicine. It's, uh, it's made from a vine and, um, it is, it has the, uh, I, I believe it's the highest content of DMT. Huh. DMT is a hallucinogenic molecule that also comes from the pineal gland. So we as humans actually already have DMT in our bodies, in our pineal gland. And that's very much tied to all the regulatory, emotional regulatory systems of the, the body, you know, the adrenals, the thyroid, all this kind of stuff. And the, uh, the ayahuasca, in my experience, it, the closest thing, and it may sound corny, but to me, it was like seeing God mm. experience. You, you experience a sense of wholeness that I think, if I'm not mistaken, the pineal gland secretes the DMT upon, upon death. So when people speak about all of a sudden finding peace or seeing the, seeing the light, um, that is mm. triggered partially by this DMT release. Okay. So when you take the DMT in the ceremonial sense, you have this very integrated sense of belonging with yourself, with the universe. You feel like, oh, now I get what it means to be connected. And all of a sudden, all your your concerns and worries pale in comparison, and and it, you you there's a good chance. You know, I, I can't give a guarantee on it because you know it depends. Every individual is different. For but for most people, it brings this sense of contentment and acceptance, and all of a sudden, just a huge weight drops off of you. Yeah, L- literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. First figuratively, and because of that, gradually, literally, yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, it's interesting because over the weekend I, I took an art class and, uh, this woman who lives in my town, she's an extraordinary painter. Uh, so she gave my family a little art class and, and what we talked about, and this is, sounds like it's very, uh, very much what you're talking about is left brain, right brain activity, where the left side of the brain is, is, uh, very, uh, obsessed with details and being able to label things and finding that judgment. Whereas the right brain is the creative side. It's the the side that loses track of time. 
the side that gets in touch with the visceral. Yeah, and then uh, both are important. You know, it's, uh, absolutely. it's sort of the the idea of if you're on a boat, you know, with an engine but no rudder, you're going to have a lot of a lot of energy and a lot of thrust and a lot of passion, but you're going to slam into things. And if you only have a boat with a rudder but no motor, you're, you you can rudder around as much as you want, but you're not moving forward. Right. So you need a balance between those two. Absolutely. But I, th- I think that uh, all too often we get stuck in left brain activity, uh, which is the one that says you can't draw or, you know, you can't eat that food or you know tr- tries to define it uh, to a point that it's, you know, it's irrefutable. Yeah. I mean, our society rewards it more, you know. Yeah, absolutely. A successful person is a person who made a lot of money. And, you know, so it's like, oh, so Kim Kardashian is successful. And, uh, you know, um, Vincent van Gogh was a loser. Right. You know, I would argue the opposite is true, but. Right, right, right. No, I hear <laughs> you. I... But by our metric. Is that, that from being Dutch? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, okay, so when you do your re- retreats, is it uh, like you talk about the cooking class and, and the chocolate making? Is there a, a little bit of a consistency of schedule? In other words, are, are do you start each day out, let's say, with a meditation or uh, something that that centers and and focuses intention for the rest of that day's activities? Yes. So yes, there there is consistency. The, so the the retreat itself is a week long retreat, and in the mornings we start with a yoga class, uh, or we start with a, walk, a nature walk on the property. And, um, and that sort of sets the tone. Um, and then we have, uh, throughout the week, we have three digestive psychology classes that I teach. And that really takes people the whole arc of the story from, uh, understanding how and why it's all connected to seeing how that may be the case for you personally to finding resolve and answers and how you can now take this learning and apply it to your life. So that's, that's the, the sort of the three chapters of the workshops. I see. And then one day we'll have a cooking class. One day we'll have a chocolate making class. One day we have more of a resting day, journaling day, meditative day, because that's the ayahuasca day. And the day after ayahuasca is sort of a resting and reflection day also with a yoga class and, uh, sometimes we'll do an art class. And then the last day is sort of a, a reward festivity day. We go to the beach, we go sea kayaking, we go out to town, have some nice lunch. And it's, it's a very chill, fun day before we go home. Right. The, the, I'm, I'm going back to the cooking class. Uh, <laughs> are we, are we looking at, uh, Costa Rican cooking? Is there, because as you know, everybody's, everybody's coming in with a, a different thing of, uh, Regardless of of them wanting to be part of uh, what you're teaching, you're going to have the vegan, you're going to have the vegetarian, you're going to have the paleo, you're going to have you know this whole wide range of of people. How does the the cooking element? What does that reflect? And 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 how malleable is it? Or you know how much can people kind of concur? Yes, we can all sit down and eat this. Well, in general, what I do is uh, as we get closer to the date, I talk to all the participants and we we find what everybody's needs and desires are and we can cater toward that. Okay. In the past, you know, there's uh, it, the base of it is pretty much vegetarian. Um, you know, we use a lot of rainforest edible plants and it's a very it's a very cool menu. A lot of a lot of fruits and stuff like that. But then also and, and also the first two days have to be a little bit more, you know, we're coming back to the term fasting, but it has to be a little more fasting because it really, uh, that really supports the ayahuasca experience on day three. Okay. Yeah. And then the day after the experience, um, we get a little bit more grounded. So we get a little bit heavier fare, if you will. Uh, but also that day we have some fish and, you know, we bring right. in some animal I protein. See. Um, and that doesn't mean that, you know, if you're vegetarian, you're forced to eat it, of course. It just right. means that it's made available. Right, right. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And then how, um, d- just, uh, real quick, if you can walk us through one of your workshops, what do you, you know, I, I want people to understand what they get differently, you know, what different elements, um, they would get by doing different types of programs with you. So I do um, one-day educational workshops, which really lay out this this same arc. You know, how is you know 
for people that have been struggling with going from one diet to the next, to the next, you know, and still not really resolving what they would like to resolve, it's like, okay, well, there's, there's a missing piece that you're not dealing with, which is your, the emotional component. So let's, let me explain to you why and how that works. So that's more me sharing with them why this is an important component. Uh, then we do three-day workshops. I'm, I'm going to have one in Austin, Texas in two months. And I will update it on my uh, once the dates are actually firmed up. Okay, and we'll have links website. to that, and you can you know just uh, hit us up and make sure that we know when those new dates are released, and we'll make sure that we send out a little blast about it. No problem. Ah, great, thank you. Yeah, so that's a three day, and that's in conjunction with the yoga studio. So that's that incorporates uh, yoga classes, and then again the the digestive psychology, so that we really find this harmony between the body and mm-hmm. the emotional mind. And then in the Costa Rican uh, experience, that's the week long. That's the art right. that I just told you. Now, beside that, I also do one-on-one counseling. Um, there are a few people who live close enough to me that we do it in person, but most of my clientele is via Skype. So anybody with a good internet connection who would like to find some resolve can hit me up and we can set up private counseling sessions. And that then gets really catered to very specific mm-hmm. personal needs. You know, and then and then we find out, you know, for instance, I had uh, a person who was in New York and she had sudden weight gain and she didn't know what it was about. So she asked me, hey, can you the funny thing is that even though still, people, you know, I tell people what the work is that I do and they still think yeah. I'm going to give them a diet and tell them. Exactly. You know, you need to cut I just want to know the good and bad calories. foods. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So. She had this unexplained, you know, she had this sudden weight gain and, and we got talking and it turned out that recently she'd started eating a lot more French fries than she used to. Okay, well, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that that right. will lead to weight gain. So the question became, why are you craving more French fries? So this became, this is why it becomes therapy. So through some therapeutic work, we found out that um, when she was younger, her stepfather would pick her up from school and take her to ballet a few times a week. And usually they would eat pretty healthy food, except for when he was really rushed, like he was, he had a very busy day. He would just pick her up real quickly. They would get some French fries and he would drop her off to ballet and go run more errands and pick her up. And so she felt safe with him, even though they were very rushed. He always took really good care of her. So she always felt safe in the situation, even though she also experienced the anxiety of being rushed. But because when they were rushed, they would eat French fries, her mind associated French fries with comfort while being rushed. So now she's living in Brooklyn. She works in the city of New York. She recently had become a mom and she was commuting and she had all this stress and all this. She was feeling very rushed in her life. And so subconsciously, her mind remembered Oh, when you're stressed like this, when you're rushing around, one of the ways you feel comfortable right. it is it makes you feel secure fire. like a little girl. Somebody's looking after you, right? Yes, exactly. So that's how, for her, eating French fries had been linked to self-soothing while being rushed. So what we did in therapy is, is disconnect that sense and reconnect a different food, you know, a much healthier food. So now when she's feeling anxious, she craves different foods that are much healthier for her. And as a result, she right. lost the weight. That's awesome. That's awesome. And how how long would you say it took you to get to the bottom of this, to this this French fry <laughs> connection? Yeah, you know, it, it depends from person to person. Just like with every yeah. you know, with every other therapy, you know, some people are are very self aware. They're very self reflective. They're they're conscious of their own patterns. They're conscious of their their feelings. And so with them, it's very easy to process. For other people, you know, it takes a little bit longer and I need to ask more questions and I, I, I need to puzzle it together a little bit more right. and it takes a little longer. Then also, you know, is a trauma very deeply embedded and has been rehearsed for 30 years or is it something that just right. came up six months ago? You know, so that, that comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Is the neural pathway very, very stimulated and grown or is it something that's yeah, it's this kind of this weird habit that I recently right. picked up what, what's that all about I, I've got to ask you something as someone who works with energy psychology uh, I, I often get people who come for healing therapy whatever and when they see that their psychological walls are being broken down they get mad at me 
<laughs> do you do you ever have someone who who has you know, they they talk a good game about wanting results, but as soon as you start delivering, they start they try to put up as many walls in front of you as possible, and then you know when they realize that all of their uh, th- this crutch that they've been be- become accustomed to, you know you're just about to kick the last one from under them, uh, that they they retaliate, they get really angry, and then they start. I don't know, whether it's bad mouthing you or or just saying uh, you know this isn't it's it's not supposed to be this easy basically to to get rid of. Have you ever had that? Um, I haven't. I haven't had what you are <laughs> I didn't describing. Think you um, <laughs> but you know, it's also um, I don't know. I I I think you know. I, I'm not. I'm not a person. I don't know. I mean, it's. Um, I, I think I'd like to think that I am fairly good at walking the line between uh, being nurturing and soft and understanding when that's what a person needs or take, you know, not taking bullshit and giving them a good kick in the ass when it, right. when they need a little bit of, you know, a little bit of, of a harder approach, you know, a little bit more of a firm approach and just be confronted with, look, this is, this is the reality of your situation. You right. want to do something about it or not. And just, you know, be straight up with them about it because that's, you know, sometimes yeah. that's what it takes. And, you know, a person who has a, a fear or a concern or a worry or, a, you know, something that they feel vulnerable. And if their way of dealing with the vulnerability, if their coping mechanism is to put up a wall, then the reason why they built the wall is because they're feeling very yeah. vulnerable. So if you then start tearing away at that wall, yeah, of course they're going to lash out a little bit, you know, because you're taking away their safety and clearly they right. needed it. That's why they built it. And if you're the one who's coming by to tear down, then you're the threat. So, you know, th- they need to understand though, that it is only through the process of breaking down that wall. And yes, it'll be scary sometimes. And yes, it'll be a little vulnerable sometimes. And yes, you're going to feel things. Surprise, surprise. But right, that's right. the only way I it's going to I always find happen. it funny when they come to me for this and then you know, they find out, oh my God, it's actually working. I don't want this. I don't want, <laughs> they, they, they change their mind halfway right. through. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's working. <laughs> this is wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us, Caspar Poik, of uh, uh, clinical hypnotherapist from whatmakesyoueat.com. I want you to check out his site, check out his Costa Rican adventure. It, and it's before Thanksgiving. So if you have issues that may come up, whether it's with the family meal or just, uh, the kind of cravings and, and, uh, different compulsions that maybe come up, the, the negative Nancy talk at the table. Uh, it sounds like this, uh, Costa Rican adventure will really help to abate some of that. So, uh, definitely. And the cool thing also is even if you don't have issues, even if you don't have, but you're just yes. interested in food or you're just interested in seeing how all this stuff works. It's a really, it's awesome. a great trip to be on. Even if you just want to come and make chocolate, come for that. <laughs> they could come to Hawaii too, you know. <laughs> we'll have to, we'll have to talk oh, about you oh, doing okay. a retreat down here. <laughs> All right. I'd love it. Well, thank you so much, Casper. Uh, it was great talking with you. Any last words before I let you go? See you All right. in Hawaii. Awesome. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean, and our operations manager is Linda Hansen. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you just want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks! Thanks!